0: And our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 through 16. This is found on page 810 in your Pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take one as a gift from us. We'd love for you to do that. Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 16 reads this way. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet."
1: Thank you to Anthony for uh, reading scripture for us this morning and doing the announcements. My name is Paul Brandis, and I have the privilege of serving the Brookside campus as an associate pastor. It's been a little while since I've had the uh, pleasure of preaching here. Uh, I guess. We can't really call this a stage uh, on this platform. I'm actually blown away that in three years, one of us hasn't fallen off this thing, uh, and, and now that I say that, I'm probably going to do that today, but I'm really glad that all of you are here uh, this morning, and uh, and I want to draw attention to our Kid Connect. Uh, we have these every Sunday. These are for uh, the children that come or those who are just young at heart, an opportunity for them to uh, engage a bit more with the sermon, follow along, and then there's some great take-home activities, um, some things that you can do uh, as a family, to really drive home the point of the sermon. Uh, there's definitely some in the center, in the back, and I think even some that are spread out, so I want to draw your attention to that. Uh, I also want to uh, pray this morning and, and ask God's blessing upon our time. We need his help uh, to understand his word, and so would you bow your heads with me uh, before we begin? Father in heaven, uh, thank you for how you've already worked and moved this morning. Um, I've had the privilege of seeing uh, that rap and poem done twice, and man, uh, Thank you for Alex and Michelle and the band and how you've gifted and, and made them, Lord. And I pray that uh, we would continue on in a, in a style and, and with a service that honors and glorifies you. I pray now that I would decrease and you would increase, and that this sermon and the word spoken would be uh, all about you and would point to what it truly means for the church to be salt and light. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, it's a bit outdated and it's totally sappy. Uh, And it's January 24th, so we're definitely a month past Christmas, but one of my favorite movies of all time, It's a Wonderful Life. Anybody else out there with me? It's a Wonderful Life. Got some people. Okay. So this movie is great. It's one of my mom's all-time favorites as well. She can quote almost every single line. I've been watching this movie since before I can remember uh, watching this movie. That's how long my mom has been showing this to me, right? So uh, many of you probably know the storyline. The hero, George Bailey, he's in a tough spot, and he wonders. He wonders if anyone would miss him if he hadn't have been born. And then, just like we'd expect, the storyline's totally normal, right? An angel drops out of heaven into a river, George saves him, and they begin this journey of actually seeing what his life and the lives of those around him would have been like if he hadn't been born. And... He realizes he actually has touched a lot of lives. He it's good that he was born. He's done some good things, and he gets a chance to go back into his normal life, and we get the great final scene, just an iconic scene. He's you remember this? He's running through the town, he stops off at the the evil Mr. Potter's and he says, Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter! And Mr. Potter says, Merry Christmas to you in jail. Which is one of my mom's favorite lines. And he goes home, he runs into the house and he runs up the stairs, and the little handle comes off, and he's been mad at the handle, but now he kisses the handle, and he puts it back, and he runs up to his youngest daughter, and he says, come here, Zuzu, my little ginger snap. Remember this scene, right? It's all incredibly touching and wonderful and and sentimental, but uh, the thing about about It's a Wonderful Life is that if you actually step back and think about it, it, it probably brings up for most of us kind of a rather depressing thought because i don't think it's possible to watch it's a wonderful life and not ask the same question that george bailey asks would would anyone miss me H- have i made an impact H- have i changed anyone's life i mean those are frankly depressing questions but i'm willing to bet that most of us here today have thought those things from time to time And lately, I've been asking and thinking about the same question for us, Christians, the church. Would anyone miss us? If we all disappeared today without a trace, would anyone actually care? Would anyone miss the church? You know, what would happen if, after service today, we all went to our neighbors and asked them if they'd miss Christ Community Brookside at 67th and Mornell? I know people probably would be sad to lose this beautiful building, but church is more than that, isn't it? Would they miss us, the Christians who make up this church? Or, what would the answer be if you ask your coworkers or classmates this question? Is the church a benefit or a liability to society? It'd be an interesting straw poll, wouldn't it? And I'm not sure that the results would be entirely favorable. I mean, even think about all of the different ways that Christians engage within our culture. That's quite the spectrum, isn't it? I mean, you've got Christians over here who are so far away from culture that they don't even drive cars or use electricity. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you have Christians who look 100% like the non-Christians that are around them. And then you've got Christians or so-called Christians who are so angry that they actually picket at funerals or Christians who seem to be more concerned with political power than actually living out what Jesus taught. Is it any wonder that this question is so scary? Would anyone miss us? To so many, Christians seem either completely irrelevant, ridiculously angry, obsessively power-hungry, or just plain weird. And those of you who are here today who aren't Christians, you're, you're like, yeah, what's wrong with you guys? And I'm glad that you're here. And, and let me tell you, to be honest, even as a pastor, I find myself asking that question a lot of the church What is wrong with us? Would anyone miss us? And the truth is, it isn't supposed to be this way. I think it's clear that as the church, we're pretty confused about what we're supposed to do when it comes to interacting with the culture around us. And I think the reason why we're confused runs pretty deep, because I don't think we're lacking an action plan. We've got plenty of those, it's more fundamental. Our problem is that not, our problem is not that we don't know what to do, it's that we don't know who we are. Our problem is not that we don't know what to do, it's that we don't know who we are. And Jesus, being the brilliant man that he is, he anticipates this problem. And he speaks to it directly in one of the most famous sermons ever recorded. We're a few weeks in to a new teaching series in the book of Matthew titled An Upside-Down Kingdom. You were calling it that because this sermon, often called the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus' teaching about the citizens of this new, breaking-in kingdom. And his description of these kingdom citizens is almost nothing like what we would expect him to say. It's rather, well, upside down. And because Jesus' kingdom that's breaking in, is so countercultural, he knows that there is going to be tension between those who follow him and the broader culture. He knows that. And so he goes right there. Look again at the beginning of the passage that Anthony read for us just a couple minutes ago. Matthew 5, and I'm going to read verses 11 and 12. Jesus knows there'll be this tension. So he says, blessed are you, When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, Jesus anticipates this hostile relationship, He sees it coming. And so in the course of the Sermon on the Mount, which we began studying last week with, with Bill covering the Beatitudes, what it means to be truly happy in this upside-down kingdom, Jesus moves from that teaching into teaching about how, when the relationship gets hostile, how you should interact as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. How does this work out since there's going to be this tension? And instead of handing us a to-do list with check boxes, it's almost what we would expect Here's how to be happy in the kingdom. As you live it out in this world, you're going to be persecuted. Here's what you do to fix that, or here's how you interact. Here's the to do list. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he goes deep, he goes to identity. Jesus answers the question Who are we? Who are we as the church, as Christians? And he answers it. He says, You are salt. And you are light. He paints these two word pictures to help clarify our identity. Visual learners are like, yes, I get, to, I get to picture this, right? This is what Jesus does. He paints these pictures. And first, in verse 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. You know, salt today is a really common commodity. It's not hard to get your hands on some salt, right? But in Jesus' day, salt was rare and valuable. In fact, it was so valuable that it was part of a Roman soldier's compensation package. That's how valuable it was. It's actually part of how Roman soldiers were paid. It's where we get the word salary derives from this. You've probably heard the expression, worth his salt or worth her salt. That's where this expression comes from. It's a valuable and rare commodity, and it derived its worth from its many uses, So salt could be used to clean things from impurities. They used it as well to flavor their food like we do today. But by far, the most important way salt was used in Jesus' time was as a preservative. A preservative. I mean, we know this now. We have to remind ourselves. But 2,000 years ago, there were no refrigerators. There were no freezers. There was no ice boxes. How were you going to keep food from going bad, especially meat? Well, you use salt. Salt acts as a preservative. Primarily, salt was used to slow down decay. And this, this is what Jesus has in mind when he tells his followers that they are the salt of the earth. The church is meant to have a preserving effect on a decaying world. The church is meant to have a decaying effect, a preserving effect on a decaying world. That was a bad place to do that, wasn't (laughs) it? Let's just all own that for a second, kind of sit in it, that's good. The church is meant to have a preserving effect on a decaying world. I caught it, though, that's good, okay. When the industry standard practice goes awry, when we see injustice in our schools and in our economic strategy, the church is to be the force that stands in the gap and says no. The force that stands in the gap and says there is a better way and points to Jesus, In doing this, the church acts as a vital preservative for the benefit of the common good. In doing this, the church acts as the salt of the earth. And if we ignore, if we ignore this vital part of our identity, then there's this very serious trap that we can fall into as the church. And Jesus addresses this. Look back with me at our passage. I'm gonna read a little bit farther in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but... If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, strictly speaking, salt can't lose its saltiness since it's a sodium chloride, is a com- it's a stable compound. But in Jesus' day, most salt actually came from salt marshes and not from evaporated salt water and because of that because it came from salt marshes it was actually possible and this happened often for there to be a lot of impurities along with the salt and so what happened what was actually possible is for the salt the actual salt that you need and want to use and is useful to actually be leached out and so you're left with something that's not even salt it's something entirely different it's it's gross it's diluted and it's entirely useless and this happens to Christians as well. It happens to Christians, it happens to churches, and it happens to whole denominations. The upside-down, countercultural marrow of being a Christian ends up getting leached out and they're left different and diluted, unrecognizable and unable to perform their important task of preserving the decaying world around them. Because the thing is, how can you act as a preservative if there's no difference between the thing that you're trying to preserve? Fundamentally, meat can do its job and can preserve. Fundamentally, salt can preserve meat because they're different. Salt can can do its job of preserving the meat because it's it's not the same. And so what Jesus, and even though we might not want to hear this, but what Jesus is telling us is that as Christians we're going to be different. I don't necessarily think that means we have to be weird, but we're going to be different. That is if we want to have any shot at living out this part of our identity. In Jesus' day, when when salt was leached out and and, and this unrecognizable thing was left, what do you think happened to it? Without question, like Jesus says in Matthew 5.13, it was thrown out, only to be trampled underneath people's feet. And that word trampled is, is actually really interesting in the original language. It's a fascinating word. You know, my wife, Bevan, and I, we have a nine-month-old son, Bevan, and somehow, some way, I don't know how, but he leaves his toys all over our house. And all the time, I'm finding myself accidentally trampling over them. I have no idea how such a tiny human can get toys so spread out. But he does, and my feet find them, and often it is sharp and or has wheels. <laughs> right? This, this has happened to you, okay? You've trampled on somebody's toys. But that's not exactly what this word means, because I'm not trying to trample on these toys, right? I'm trying to avoid that. It's not an accidental trampling what's happening to the salt here. It's actually an intentional trampling with the intent to destroy. It's filled with emotion and premeditation. This is a bad thing that's happening to this compound that used to be salt but is no longer useful. And it's the only thing that salt and the church is good for when, because it misunderstands her identity, she becomes so deluded that she loses all function. It's the only thing it's good for, to be thrown out and be trampled. As important as it is for salt to retain its saltiness, it is just as and more important and vital for the church to fight against the trap of dilution and to stay different so that she can act out her identity as a preserving agent in a decaying world. You, the church, are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. The second picture Jesus paints to help the church understand her identity is that of light. In Matthew 5.14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world, the light of the world. Your light is a common metaphor from Jesus, and it's also widely used throughout the rest of the Bible. And often when we come upon light as a metaphor, it's standing for either hope or truth or some combination of both, hope or truth. Is there anything that our world today needs more than hope and truth? I don't think so. I don't know about you, but when when I look around at the world today, I see a lot of brokenness. I see a lot of tragedy. I see a lot of things that aren't the way they ought to be. I see a lot of hopelessness. And I also see a lot of deceit, a lot of lying, A lot of people trusting in things that they think are going to measure up, but then never do. And it's too late before they realize they've been sold a bill of goods. In short, today the world needs hope, and it needs truth. You, the church, are the light of the world. It's a dark world out there today, and the church is to be a shining light, bringing both hope and truth. You know, in his letter to the Philippian church, the Apostle Paul, he writes and he tells them that when their conduct is right before the Lord, then they shine as lights among a crooked and twisted generation. You know, the, the Philippian church stands out because they are wholly different, bringing hope and truth. Here again, though, in our identity as light, there's a trap And if we misunderstand our identity as the light of the world, it's so easy to fall into. If one temptation and one side of the spectrum is to become so like the world or so of the world that we're not different in any way and we're deluded and so we can't make a difference, we can't preserve, if that's one temptation and trap, then on the other end of the spectrum, the trap and temptation that we can fall into is to run away and to hide and withdraw and separate. And Jesus, he anticipates this trap and this mistaken part of our identity as well. He speaks directly to this. In verse 15, he points out the obvious. People don't light a candle and then immediately hide it under a basket. It's nonsensical. He's painting this humorous picture and he's trying to drive his point home. Light shines, it's what it does. And when the church doesn't grasp this part of her identity, then it is actually easy, I think, to understand why the church might become primarily concerned with her own safety and so draw back into hiding. But withdrawal and separation is not how Jesus has designed his church to engage with the world. And ultimately, what happens to a candle that's been hiding under a basket? It goes out from a lack of oxygen. If it remains covered long enough, it, it does, it's not lit anymore. And so, ironically, whether the church becomes exactly like the world and is so diluted that it can't perform its function, it can't perform its part of the identity of salt, or the church hides its light under a basket and it goes out, in either case, the end result is the same and we don't engage the world in the way that Jesus wants us to. End result is the same in either trap. Now, at this point, many of you have probably noticed that so far I've been mostly talking about the church and not individual Christians. And if you've heard this passage preached before, then you've probably heard something along the lines of, you, uh, individual Christian, you are the light of the world. This is the, the song, This Little Light of Mine, Right? And that's not entirely wrong, not at all. Individual Christians are the light of the world and the salt of the earth, but we can't miss—we can't miss that this this is not anywhere near the full beauty and power of the picture that Jesus is trying to paint for us here. You know, in verse fourteen, Jesus further illustrates what he means by us having an identity of light of the world, and he says, "You are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. You're like a city on a hill." that cannot be hidden. And this is a clarifying picture that Jesus provides, and it's not one of a light stranded in darkness, of one single light stranded in the darkness, but it's a picture of a collection of lights that are so powerful that they can't be hidden even if they tried. They can't be hidden even if they tried. Uh, You've probably seen pictures like this one before. This is uh, the Midwestern region of our country Uh, At night, taken from space. And and right in the middle, uh, at kind of the the middle top right there, that's the city of Chicago. And, And as you move down, you can see the city of St. Louis. And as you move over, you can just start to see the northern lights of the Kansas City Metro. You are a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. The picture that Jesus is painting in verse 14 is clear. Christians are meant to function together. Think about it. What will one grain of salt do for a 16-ounce steak that's about to go bad? Or or what will one candle do for a city that has all of its power gone out? The identity of Jesus' followers, salt and light, is a corporate one. A stray Christian here and there isn't anywhere close to as powerful as when the whole body is gathered in the form of a local church. In the same way that the cluster of lights in that picture of Chicago, as the same way as that cluster of lights screams out, here is Chicago from space, Here is Chicago. In the same way as that, the local church, as she was meant to be, is designed to scream out to a very needy world, here is your hope, here is your truth, here is your life, here is the fulfillment of your heart's desires. The church, as she was designed to be, is meant to announce that and to scream it out. At Christ Community, we deeply believe that the local church, as God designed it, is the hope of the world. If you've been here for any length of time, you've heard us say that. The local church as God designed it is the hope of the world. It's his plan A and he doesn't have a plan B. There's no backup, there's no fail safe. And passages like this one, Matthew 5, 13 through 16, right from the lips of Jesus himself, passages like this are why we are so sold out to that belief. Now, As I say these things this morning, I'm sure that at least a few of you here today are having some sort of a visceral reaction because you might think, and and I might even be uh, swayed to agree with you, that what I've been saying is fairly arrogant, right? You might be thinking, isn't that what's wrong with all of the churches, that they believe they're so much better than everyone else? Isn't that holier-than-thou attitude exactly what drives people away, exactly what makes the church irrelevant? And can I tell you something? Those are really fair questions. Because for a really long time, this text has been used as a rallying cry for Christians who really, at the end of the day, misunderstood where their identity comes from. They they misunderstood the source of their identity because you see, and, and hear me on this this morning, please, it is only in Jesus that the church's salty and bright identity can be found. Jesus, who once stood before a crowd and claimed, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but in the light of life. Jesus, who John describes as the light that the darkness has not overcome. Jesus, who stepped into a world that was dark and full of decay and healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, cast out demons, and raised the dead to life. Jesus. Church, we are not salt and light because we're so much better than anyone else. We know that that's not true, don't we? We are salt and light in this world because God himself lives in and among us. It's the very God who commanded us to let our light shine that lives in us. The very God who spoke the first light into being The very God who claimed I am the light of the world and then backed that statement up by walking out of a grave after he had been in there for three days. The very God whose presence will one day make our need for the sun obsolete. That's the God who dwells inside you and me. That's the God that makes the church salt and light. It isn't anything that we've done. It is all and always about him. The thought that we would ever be arrogant about our God-given and God-empowered identity as salt and light is really rather silly. We should approach our engagement with the world with incredible humility, knowing that it is not us, but Him that's making it all happen. The church is the salt and light of the world, yes, absolutely, but only because of Jesus. Don't forget that. Because that is the key to our identity. That is the key to who we are. Now, you might be thinking, okay, Paul, I get it. I get it. The church is salt and light. That is who we are, that's our identity. But what does she do? How does she actually engage the world? That's a great question. I am so glad you asked that. I'd love to answer it for you. We covered why we had to start with being this morning. When we start with doing as opposed to being, we get all sorts of mixed up. We had to start with our identity. That's where Jesus starts. That's where he takes us to. But Jesus anticipated your question as well. He wants to tell us what it is that we do out of our right understanding of being. Out of our right understanding of our identity. And so in verse 16, the final verse in our passage, Jesus says this, and he answers the what we do question. He says this, in the same way exactly like a lamp on a stand in the middle of a dark house. In that way, let your light shine. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. What does the church do? In a word, we shine. We shine. This is how the church is meant to function in the world. This is what the church is meant to do. And this makes sense, right? I mean, it's pretty, it it follows along with the flow. If we are salt, we preserve in a decaying world. If we are light, we shine in a dark world. Who we are flows right into what we do. We have to understand that. And here's the deal. Jesus makes it crystal clear that the church is for the world. The church is for the world. There's no two ways about it. The church is not for her own good. The church is not against the world or of the world. Jesus' followers gathered in the church are for the world to shine in the darkness. To shine. You know, which got me thinking what does that look like? What does it look like to shine in the darkness? Well, I think it looks like Mother Teresa, who when faced with an enormous pattern of abortion in India, responded not in shouts of anger and judgment, but in the gentle whisper that begged pregnant mothers to give her their unwanted babies. It looks like Martin Luther King Jr., who in the face of violence and oppression, stood up for the rights of the oppressed with a heart not full of hatred, but full of compassion for his oppressors. And he endured in that posture all the way to his own death. It looks like William Wilberforce who left his position of power, prestige and affluence to pursue the end of the legalized slave trade in the British Empire. It looks like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who had the chance to flee Nazi Germany for America, took that opportunity and then realized that he had to go back. Had to go back and be a bright shining light in the middle of one of the darkest places of all time. Imagine a world without people like that. Imagine a world with people who are so devoted to Jesus that they naturally exude the light of his glorious kingdom to all around them. A world where the darkness and decay of abortion, slavery, oppression, and genocide go totally unchecked. That's what's at stake if tomorrow we were to wake up and all the churches in Kansas City were gone. Those are high stakes. Would anyone miss us? I hope so. So how are we doing at this? What are the marks of a church that is being both salt and light in a dark and decaying world? In our passage, Jesus makes it clear that his followers ought to expect the world to respond in two ways, two ways. First, in persecution, and second, in praise. Persecution and praise. Our faithful presence in this world should cause some to persecute and revile us, and some to give glory to our Father in heaven. Again, these are both in our passage. Verses 11 and 12, where we began this morning, are Jesus' warning of the coming persecution for his followers. But the end of verse 16, which I just read, reveals that when a needy world, a desperately needy world, sees the church doing what she is designed to do, then they praise the Father in heaven. Persecution and praise. So let's step back and think about this. If all we ever get... If all we ever get as a church are people who join us without anyone ever being mad at or reviling us, then we're probably missing something. We probably aren't fully embodying the good news that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because it's good news, but it's offensive good news. I mean, the gospel looks each one of us square in the face and says, You are wrong. You need a rescuer. And it's good news because there is a rescuer. His name is Jesus. But the message offends first. Because in a culture where we never want to say that other people are, that we're wrong, that's what the gospel does. It looks at each and every one of us and first says, you are wrong, you are a sinner, and you need a savior. And so it's an offensive message. It is. And so if no one ever persecutes or reviles us for this message, then we need to ask why a world that persecuted Jesus, whose name we bear and whose message we carry, would not do the same to us. We need to ask that question. But on the other side, if all we ever get are people reviling us and saying all kinds of evil things about us, and we never see anyone choose to worship Jesus and change their lives to order it along with Him, then we're also probably missing something. We're probably just contentious and angry and argumentative. We probably don't truly have compassion and care for the eternal fate of this world. If no one ever joins us in praising Jesus and glorifying the Father, we have to step back and look at that. You know, neither one of these are desirable, right? These are not an, it's not an either or. We don't want people joining something less than the radical upside down kingdom that Jesus invites us into. And we don't want people turning away because the citizens of that kingdom are so angry and argumentative that no one wants to be around them. Neither one of those things are good. So we have to, we're called into, live into the middle of this very difficult ground of both grace and truth, just like Jesus did. So here's your takeaway for the week. Pay attention to your interactions with others. When you're at work, when you're at school, when you're around your friends and family, do you prefer to fly under the radar, protect yourself by a lack of detection as a Christian? Is there nothing really unique to notice about you as a Christian, nothing different? Do people know that something's different about the way you live your life? Are people both simultaneously attracted to and yet offended by your message and your life? Do you see both the response of persecution and of praise? Over the next few Sundays, Jesus is going to get really, really concrete about what this salt and life looks like. He's going to tell us exactly the types of actions that naturally flow from someone who truly understands their identity as the salt and light of the world. That's the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But today, this morning, it all boils down to this. The church is for the world. It's God's plan A for a dark and decaying world to see his glory, to turn from its sin, and to embrace the abundant and eternal life offered In his son Jesus. Church, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus who makes it possible for us to be the salt and light of the world. May we never forget that it's because of him that we have that glorious identity. And may we also, Lord, not get mixed up and jump right to doing before we truly understand what it means to be salt and light. May we make our way out into your needy world this week as salt and light, and may people both persecute us because we bring a truthful message, but also praise your name in heaven and align themselves with Jesus, the most brilliant and wonderful man who ever lived. Pray these things in your name. Amen.